Hello, I'm Bridget Harvey and I'd like to welcome you to Getting Making, a podcast exploring how we make things, collect them, live with them, work with them and care for them. During this episode of Getting Making, the internet dropped and we had a couple of other interruptions. So there's a few parts of it where it's a little bit glitchy, but just bear with us because the conversation is still really interesting. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about the Camberwell Ilia collection and how you came to be involved in it? Yeah, so the Camberwell Ilia collection, and Ilia is short for the Inner London Education Authority collection, was begun in the 1950s. It was initially started by the Council of Industrial Design and later managed by Ilia, the Inner, Inner London Education Authority. And in its early stages, to use their word or words, if you like, it was thought of as an experiment. So they thought of it as an experiment mm. in design appreciation. So what they, what the council did was put together a handling collection of objects, which they deemed quote unquote good design or examples of good design. Yeah. And these objects were taken into schools and used as a handling collection to teach primary school children the kind of notion of what it means to be a good design object. And at that time in the 50s, it, there was a relatively small and kind of narrow um, idea of what constituted good design. And quite often it was very functional objects. They were quite often designed and made and manufactured in Britain. Mm. They would have been from a kind of select group of manufacturers and makers or, or various retailers. And that experiment in design appreciation evolved over the years and it became much more of a sort of formal lending program. It became much bigger in its aim and its objectives. Mm. And what it sort of evolved into was essentially a kind of traveling museum, if you like. So yeah. there were boxed showcases that were kind of engineered and crafted to house objects on particular themes. And these box showcases were lent out to a much larger number of London secondary schools um, across all London boroughs. And it, were, it was schools which at the time were under the administration of the Inner London Education Authority, which is an educational okay. government board. Okay, nice. And, and those, um, those boxes were also the display cases, right? Yeah, so they had a dual purpose. So they yeah. were to kind of protect the objects so yeah. that they physically travel around but they were designed in such a way that they would open out and, and yeah, exactly become this kind of showcase. Yeah. Okay, lovely. And, and how is it stored now? So the collection is stored at Camberwell, so Camberwell College of Arts, which is part of UAL, University of the Arts London. And it's, it occupies two storerooms um, at the college. And it's, it's not perfect museum storage by any stretch of the imagination, um, but it's 
what we have available to us at this moment in time. Yeah. So it's a complicated storeroom with shelving and bays and all the objects are boxed and stored in conservation safe boxes. Yeah. And we retrieve it from, you know, from that space to yeah. use with students. And was it always stored like that? No. So the collection, when it kind of finished its life as this handling collection in schools, mm. that purpose ran until the sort of mid-1970s. Yeah. And at that point, when Ilya disbanded, the collection was then transferred to the university. So at the point where the objects were transferred to us, at that moment in time, it wasn't conceived of as a kind of museum collection, if you like. Yeah, yeah. The objects were simply rehomed, you know, for want of a better word. Yeah. So the way that they were stored at that time was simply practical. So objects were kind of wrapped in sort of rudimentary packing materials and placed into really large wooden um, tea crates, which I've always found quite unusual. I don't know where these kind of tea crates came from. Yeah. But we had, you know, lots of them, these great big wooden, you know, tea crates. Yeah. Like Kenya and things. And the objects kind of languished in those conditions for quite a while um, until the kind of early 1990s when Camberwell College really began to, I suppose, investigate what was there and started to manage it in a more professional way. Yeah. So people like um, uh, Jane, uh, Linda Sandino and Jane Parbit, I think it was, were the first kind of professional interventions um, in the collection. And so they then started to care for it in that way and begun the process of taking things out of these wooden tea chests and kind of cataloguing and photographing and rehousing them at that mm. point. You know, to a certain extent, my yeah. role continues, you know, that work. Yeah. Did you take over from them or was there a gap? No, there was a gap. So it, it is quite difficult to understand exactly what happened because it's... Yeah. Recent history, but it's it sort of there's a bit of a blackout kind of drops off. So we know that there was work done with it, you know, in sort of 94, 95. And as far as I can tell, when those key individuals left post, again, it was it seems like it was almost forgotten about. Yeah. And there were definitely people, academics or, you know, practitioners at the college who were interested in it. And I think there was an element of care coming from the old conservation department that was at Camberwell, yes. um, but then various kind of makers sort of dipped in and out of it. And I think, um, do you remember uh, Amanda Jenkins, the old associate? Yes. Yeah. She had a real vested interest in the collection. So things were happening. Um, and then they, well, then there was a, a sort of short term project cataloger post which was advertised gosh I think it was in 2017 if I'm remembering correctly maybe 2015 
yeah 2015 I think and that was when then I came in on, on a short short-term basis yeah um to catalog well they wanted I think 500 objects catalogued yeah um, really start understanding exactly what was there and the value of it and to actually yeah. start utilizing it more within teaching yeah because it's quite a broad collection so I think even how many things are in it so we've catalogued and digitized about two and a half thousand objects um, but there's almost we think double that amount left yeah. that's catalogued so around about five thousand um, yeah. but that is just a fraction of what it once was. So we know that the collection was bigger than 5,000 objects, and we can infer that from the historic numbering system that's in place. Yeah. So the objects each have a, a historic number, either written on them or on a sticky label. And you can kind of extrapolate from those numbers and work out that there should have been more than that when there is currently. Yeah. And that comes down to the nature of So one of the things that's interesting with the labels then if, is if some of the objects were missing, like did you have to work out the system of the labels or was there some kind of documentation that helped you like navigate that or how did you figure out? Yeah, so there's, there was no documentation. There was no kind of like index explaining mm. what the, the numbers and you know, the digits meant. Yeah. You could kind of infer it really. And that just comes from experience of having worked with different collections. So, you know, there's, there's always information and clues yeah. tied up in a numbering system. And, it, and it's usually a kind of chronology and, and a sort of a date system. Yeah. The, the Ilya collection, actually the labels of the numbering system is, is one of the things I find most interesting because they, so they classified their objects initially by material type so okay pottery glass metals textiles wood and, and so on yeah each of those classifications then took the first letter of the word so p for pottery w oh, for yeah. wood. so all of the objects within each class had that letter as the kind of prefix yeah and then within each group or each classification, there was then a running number. So, you know, P1 through to P700. So you'd get this kind of chronology of accession. So you'd be able to, yes. you'd, you'd, you'd be able to know which was the first object made of pottery that came into the collection through to, you know, the later pottery objects. And that's just based on the size of the number. Um, but then the really interesting thing is that there was then an additional letter at the end of the number, which did take a bit of that. This was the bit that was not so obvious, you know, straight off the bat. Yeah. But you'd get a letter, um, A running through to the end of the alphabet. A would indicate that there was at least one of something, you know. Okay. E yeah indicate there was at least three of something you know so on and so forth oh interesting so if you had three butter dishes it would have a, a b on the end of it yeah if you had three of the same butter dish yeah you'd have yeah. like um p you know one a or p yeah b and p one c yeah um, and 
and therefore you'd know that if you know if say the collection still had a and still had c you could work out you were missing b yes um, yeah but just because it ended on c and you know you, you there was no way of knowing if there was a d yes yeah so you could say that there was at least three of this particular thing um, yeah that comes down to duplication because of the nature of a handling collection and things getting damaged and used and broken. And I guess if you're sending it out to places, you might sometimes just need more than one. Yeah, absolutely. So the cases, yeah. showcases were duplicated to cater for the demand across all the different schools. Yeah. And what do you do with those duplications now? Do you keep all of them or do you just keep a sort of uh, I don't know, like a the best condition example or the most maybe like narrative imbued example or? We've kept all of them. Yeah, we've yeah. kept all of them. So the only instances where something would not be kept would be that if it was in such poor condition, you know, that, yeah. that it didn't warrant keeping or, or it presented a, a danger to other things in the collection, you know, if it had a really bad... I don't know, say it was covered in mould or something, then we might yeah, yeah. take a view that we don't necessarily need to keep that kind of duplicate, but yeah. really, we've, we've kept everything. Yeah. And um, so then when you started to organise and uh, re and sort of rehouse things into conservation boxes and that sort of thing, did you follow the same system um, or did you create an, a sort of an, uh, a new layer of organization no so in terms of collections management keeping original numbering systems is really important yeah you can sort of supersede those with a modern numbering system if you if you need to but you should always keep a reference of the original yeah. system but with Ilya the numbering system was so you know intelligible and useful yeah we, we just kept it so those historic numbers become you know the numbers that we use to identify objects from each other yeah. now um, the only time that we do impose a new number on something is if that original object number has become lost or disassociated with the object yeah which doesn't actually happen that often um, mostly because the people who were working on the collection you know you could say very wisely sometimes physically scratched Object oh, yeah. numbers onto objects or physically, you know, wrote object numbers onto objects, yeah. which we wouldn't necessarily do today. Or yeah. fact, you know, we wouldn't do today. Um, but that goes back to the fact that these objects, while they were, you know, in, in their original use, weren't thought of as a museum collection. They were simply functional objects used for teaching. So that idea of kind of preservation and marking wasn't an issue. Yeah, and I guess also maybe... Um conservation or, or sort of approaches to those kind of objects have changed a little bit now and also maybe they weren't always dealt with by museum professionals no they weren't so Ilya there were I mean Ilya was really um what's the word forward thinking in terms mm. of um let's call it object-based learning which is the term that we use today so yeah. taking objects into schools and teaching subjects like design through objects was a really forward-thinking approach and the people who worked for Ilya were obviously teachers um, and they were also museum educators 
So Ilia not only looked after primary, secondary and tertiary education, but they also looked after museums within London as well. So places mm. like the Horniman, um, the Jeffrey, which is now Museum of the Home, all of these places were managed by Ilia. And there was this yeah. kind of thread of object-based learning running across them. And so, yes, the people that were working on the um, experiment and design scheme, which later became the, sorry, the people that were working on the, yeah, experimenting, experiment, I can't think of the name of it now, the experiment in design uh, and then the circulating design scheme, it was yeah. a mix of kind of museum educators and I suppose administrators. So, that, so there was um, that knowledge base there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, are there objects now kept, like are all the pottery objects kept together, all the wood objects kept together? Yeah, to a certain degree. So the objects are boxed. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. Actually, they're, there sort of is that um, level of organisation to it. So there are boxes of you know textiles, there are boxes of ceramics, there are boxes of wooden objects. Um, but not everything is, is done by material type. Um, sometimes there are kind of connections between objects that are not so much defined by material, but it might be by maker or there might be mm. sets of things. So sometimes things are kind of grouped together differently. But yeah, on the whole, there is, they are kind of boxed by material. Yeah. And does that affect where you put them in the storage uh, spaces or is the storage space relatively stable? So sort of anything could, you know, any material would be happy in any bit of it. Yeah, because the current storage is not ideal. So mm. it's more a case of boxes are on shelves where they kind of fit best. Yes, yeah. Um, the... The, sh the store is kind of organized by box size, if you like. Yes. So all yeah. our boxes are kind of stacked on top of each other. Then we have some smaller, fragile objects and smaller boxes that are kind of on a shelf together. We yeah. do have some outsized objects, which are not in boxes, but they're kind of in their own sort of zone together. Yeah. 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 yeah so they're all sort of kept secure. Um, and then. And in that sort of sense, so you, when you have visitors to the collection, you you encourage them to engage with it and handle the objects still. Um, do you have ways that you ask um, people to show care whilst they're doing it? Um, you know, do you do you like demonstrate? Um, do you demonstrate how people should handle things, or do you tell them about it, or a bit of both, maybe? Yeah, a little bit of both. It sort of depends on. The kind of user and, and the type of interaction that's happening so yeah. because the objects as you know are stored at Camberwell um, yeah. but I am based at the archive centre which is yeah. you know the university central archive centre which is at London College of Communication which is not a million miles from Camberwell it's just down the road so when we have research requests to see objects from the Ilia collection we actually move them <coughs> to the archive centre so mm. that interaction can be done within a, a kind of humidity controlled space. It's a very clean space and it's set up for those types of interactions. Yeah. And if it's an individual researcher, then ordinarily 
we we kind of give a bit of an overview um, and a brief introduction to the space but usually we let people do a kind of self-directed study if you like yes um, but we will always give them the kind of basics around you know wearing gloves not bringing food and drink into the space you know using pencils those very kind of basic things. yeah um, but of course we're always on hand if they want further guidance so that interaction between the researcher and the object is invigilated you know i.e yeah it's watched <laughs> yeah yeah um, but if it's something slightly more involved and you know if it's a taught session if you like if we're working yeah. with a group then then yes if we've got kind of several or a group of students in the space and there are you know more than one object and if the purpose of the session is about object handling or about um, investigating or interacting or engaging with the objects in some way then we would usually do a bit more um, guidance around safe object handling and you know safe object handling practices it kind of just depends on the nature of the interaction and what the yeah search all the students want to get from it and and for example if i was looking at a mug would i be able to pick it up by the handle or would i um need to hold it by the base i just because i've looked at things like that in other archives and you know there's sort of quite strict guidelines on how you can pick those kind of objects up things with handles or yeah, um, so oh, yes you're right we'd always recommend that you handle things with both hands and that you yeah. wouldn't necessarily pick something up by the weakest point so i.e yeah. handle so it's a case of kind of retraining your brain which can be really difficult particularly when you're dealing with domestic objects yeah the ilia collection is full of domestic objects it's full of mugs plates you know knives and forks it's yes. full of things that you you know you instinctively know how to handle in your everyday life but you yeah. have to handle them with you know with a bit more care within the kind of arena of the archive center yeah yeah that's really interesting isn't it because those kind of habitual motions that we apply to you know like my my cup of tea at home then has to i almost have to block that habit um to engage with a an archive object yeah. um, well, i think that, i think that is why why we do it within the archive center because it's you're transitioning into a different space and yes also your kind of behavior uh, almost from the moment when you walk in the door when you get that initial kind of orientation introduction you kind of know that it's a, a different space a different way of working and yes. I think that lends itself quite nicely to sort of making you think quite carefully and critically about how you're going to handle something that's in front of you yes it, um yeah the sort of um the formality almost of yeah. of being yeah. in a in a handling space or an object uh, led space and and do you find that it's different because obviously you've worked in um a few different places including places based at universities like museum of domestic design and architecture up at middlesex is it yeah. and um museum of the home do you mm -hmm. find that caring for a collection within a university differs much from uh, a sort of public museum obviously the ilia collection is accessible by members of the public but it's in a different kind of um institution yeah i think i think there's a real difference i think to put it um simply if you like if you're working within a public museum as i have done the emphasis 
is on is obviously on the preservation of objects and the accessibility of objects. Um, but in terms of you know touch and handling, to a degree, you could say that that is discouraged. So yeah. really, you would only handle things when absolutely necessary, um, and that is mirrored in you know public exhibitions where it's all about looking rather than touching yeah um, whereas within the university collections I've worked with and I can't I mean this may not be true of all university collections yeah of course only for UAL um, object-based learning and learning through touch and handling is heavily encouraged so yeah. we do still absolutely have the you know, it's our role to ensure that objects are cared for and are preserved, but there's an emphasis on allowing engagement with object objects. So, you know, handling, it's essentially a kind of handling collection, if you like. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yes, so students are relatively free in terms of what they can do with our collections. Yeah. You know, so, you know, they can handle things. They can also, you know, take things to photography studios and have them photographed. Oh, that's lovely. They can perform, you know, new image technologies for things, you know, they can practice photogrammetry on them. Students yeah. can, you know, sketch objects. You know, there are still parameters and there are still rules and things are always kind of supervised by archive staff. But the freedom to use the objects, I think, gets much broader within, yes. within the university. Yes. Compared to a kind of public collection in the museum. But the, the length of time that those, I mean, you're still looking at the collection as a long term um collection for the university right so there's not an expectation that these objects will get worn out it's just no. a different allowance for how we uh how we understand them and how we explore them yeah and, and we still think very carefully you know there are still some objects where it, it may not be possible to handle them and yeah you know, it may not be possible to view them so there are still those you know those concerns but it's just that i think if we take um a much more sort of lenient approach, if you like, yeah, um, to how students can use the objects. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there are still things that are kind of out of bounds, if you like. We still have... Um, Not going to brew a pot of tea. <laughs> oh, yeah, but... yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there are still things in, in the storeroom that don't get retrieved because they make it too fragile or, you know, there are numerous examples of that. Yeah, yeah. And, and do you... Um... Do you record those interactions and do you record, um, you know, do you record what sort of happens with uh, the objects and how you organise things? And, and do you think about how you might communicate those things to people going forwards when you are no longer stewarding that collection? Um, well, we certainly record the way that we, we sort of record our statistics, if you like. Yeah. So we record um user stats of how many people are coming in as individual researchers we always record our teaching sessions you know which courses yeah. are coming in the nature of the session which individual objects are using so we have that backlog of data yeah um, but I think you might mean something else yeah I'm thinking about well there's that 
that kind of information obviously is useful because you can sort of see, I guess, which objects, um, what type of objects certain courses are in, interested in. But also, so for example, when you organised um, the collection into the storerooms in the way that you have it now, presumably you documented that and is that sort of paper documentation or is it how do you how do you talk about how you look after the, the collection in a way that whoever looks after it after you would understand it and is that in is that an important concern you know is there a sort of I guess a protocol for how you um for how you document the interactions with the collection and and the movement of it and the development of it for for future generations I guess yeah, I, th I think I see what you're saying. So it, it's almost kind of documented indirectly. So everything we do with the collections at the university is done according to collections management policies. Yeah. Things that we've written or things that are external to us. So like Spectrum, yeah. um, which is the UK collections management standard. Yeah. So things are done to existing frameworks, if you like. Yes. Rather than... A, sort of document our actions after we've done them. It's more a case of we perform our actions against frameworks yeah. that, that we as professionals are aware of, if that helps. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but what also happens is there is a, a kind of electronic, um, electronic documentation that happens through our collections management system. So through accessioning and creating records on collections, on our collections management software, which yeah. is um, TMS, which is short for the museum system. Yes. Everything you do on TMS then creates this kind of audit backlog. So you can see when objects are, um, you, you kind of record when you put an object in a certain location. You can see when an object is moved from one location to another. So there are these kind of ghostly audits, if you like, that exist just yes. through software. So you can kind of see the mechanics of a collection in that way. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And, and then that museum, the museum software, can um, can anyone access that, or is that just internal to the archives team, for example, at UAL? So we publish certain things. So yeah. Our collections records are published on um, eMuseum and also on our digital um, collections interface. So absolutely yeah. certain things, certain pieces of metadata and certain images are published and are discoverable for you know, any user, be that a yeah. student, researcher or member of the public. Yeah. Um, but those slightly more um, housekeeping, yeah kind of security type information is, is then only accessible you know internally yeah yeah the sort of mechanics of it yeah yeah oh that's so interesting and then I just wanted to ask you a couple of other things actually which are, are sort of slightly away from that I just wondered do you ever have to look after objects that you don't particularly care for you don't particularly like oh yeah always I mean I, yeah. I think you yeah so it, I don't only manage Ilya um yeah I, so the way that it works within our team, we're, we're made up of archivists and curators. And yeah. each of us manage 
or sort of inherit, if you like, um, different collections based on our own expertise, if you like. Yes. So I manage Ilia. So it's a collection yeah. of domestic design and craft and studio pottery. Um, and then sort of through a kind of advocacy, really, I've ended up managing um, Ballet Russe, which is a collection of yes. early century costumes. Uh, I also manage the Barbara Sawyer archive, which is an archive of a relatively obscure uh, modernist weaver and, and textiles. Mm. Uh, I manage the David Osborne collection, which is a collection of functional 20th century design that was amassed by um, a private collector. So those it just comes down to, I suppose, a division of, of skill and interest. Um, yeah. Above and beyond that, you know, we to a certain degree, everybody in the team kind of manages everything, if you like, you know, we will, yes, yeah. Yeah, we'll kind of retrieve things and teach with things, you know, that are kind of beyond our immediate remit. Yeah. Uh, and of course, there are always things that you're less passionate about, less interested in. Yeah. Um, you know, we, at the Archive Centre, we're, we're very well known for the archive of Stanley Kubrick, and I can appreciate that archive, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not a huge Kubrick fan. I don't know an awful lot about Kubrick and his work. Um, yeah. So there's always things that you have more interest and more passion for within yeah. managing. Yeah. I guess it's nice, though, to be able to sort of follow a path that more or less allows you to indulge your interests as well as, um, you know, your professional capacities yeah um, and and do you obviously sometimes you bring some of the Ilya objects out for display um you know and they go into the um cabinets and things around the colleges um and I just wondered do you sort of look after your own things in the same way like do you think you know do you display things at home or like do you kind of move things around and and are you very organized with your own storage yeah, I feel like that's a really, um, I feel like it's a really loaded question because yeah. <laughs> like <It's> not... <laughs> within, you know, within my own home, my husband is one of his bugbears that he feels like our space is too curated. In yes. Work. But it's that, it, it's just that way, I don't know, it's a weird one. A lot of the conversations I've been having for this, there seems to be a thread that, runs through you know because I think because we're talking about objects that everyone lives with and we're talking about things uh, around us as well as our professional um lives it, there does seem to be a thread that almost kind of comes from childhood and 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 ties into all the all the things that we do I mean I'm sat at my desk at the moment looking at a shelf of objects that would probably be extremely mundane or odd to a lot of people but are very important to my thinking well, um, yeah so yeah I feel like people that work within the kind of heritage sector if you like or within the kind of creative yeah. sector, I feel like we do place or I personally place a lot of significance on particular objects and yeah you know they have real meaning and that then translates into how I live with them you know down to yeah. very deliberately putting something somewhere because I want to see it every day you know yes. I want to have it within my kind of line of vision and I want to have it within my kind of 
headspace, if you like, and that kind of yes. translates into the way that it then gets kind of placed around the home. Yeah. Um, but then equally, like I, I do have little collections of things. You know, I do like to pick up little mementos of. You know, every time I go to a country, for example, I always pick up an object from that country. Yes. And then I always come home with a kind of Ziploc bag full of ephemera that I've picked up. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. whether that's like tickets or, you know, stones from the beach or like hotel matchboxes, you know, yeah. I have this little archive for every place that I visit. I don't necessarily even look at it, but it makes me feel great to know that it's there. So yeah. they're all kind of, you know, stuffed away in, in a cabinet. And it's kind yeah. of, I, it just makes me feel nice <laughs> that I have. Yeah. yeah, it's something about sort of containing memories, isn't it? And I think, um, you know, it also translates back to how the Ilya collection in particular is, you know, in that it it sort of has been almost stuffed in a cabinet at Camberwell for quite a long time and now it's you know it's sort of on its um it's more accessible and it moves around more um and it's there to sort of prompt those kind of thoughts and uh elements of enjoyment in the people who kind of pass it when it is in a cabinet uh you know a display cabinet somewhere rather than in the um storage rooms and so on it's it sort of um feeds back on itself I think yeah and I think you know, just talking about that kind of um, dualism between what I do at work and how I live at home. Yeah. I feel like, I, you know, I'm because I work with, with collections and archives, everything has significance, you know, yes. and, and, it, and it's there because somebody has, you know, decided that it deserves to be um, kept and preserved. And I feel yeah. like that's the same in my sort of, personal and kind of like domestic life so yeah things are things only really come in if they're deemed you know sort of you know significant enough or important yes enough, yeah. enough meaning to take up that sort of space yeah yeah that's a really really nice note to finish on and um, thank you so much for your time uh, it's been a real pleasure um listening to you this morning and chatting with you no problem thank you Bridget thanks for the invitation it's always really interesting to hear about what you're doing and I look forward to seeing the, the results of the research thanks